hey, this is a great place that God has for his people. It's a magnificent place. We will be in a resurrected body. We won't need any healing or any fixing up, whatever this fruit is for and these leaves are for. It will be purely for blessing, but not for any fixing. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 22, the final chapter of our study in the Revelation. The beginning of this chapter is a continuation from chapter 21 of a look at the New Jerusalem, the capital city of the new earth, which will replace our current earth following the millennial reign of Jesus Christ and the devil's punishment of eternity in the lake of fire. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy notes that up until this point, the revelation has only addressed God the Father as being on the heavenly throne. But now that his work is done, our passage puts both God the Father and God the Son on the throne. Now in Revelation 22 and verse 1, he puts both of them on the throne. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Two persons sitting on the throne, emblematically a third person. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God, whether it's Deuteronomy 6 or 1 Timothy 2 or James 2. God is one. Three in one, our kids sing. Three in one. Man in his finiteness cannot totally grasp it. But the truth is, is that the infinite God exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Again, this is foundational. We'll explain it in more detail. You've got to be here for the next six messages. Now, beyond the river of life, I want us to think about the tree of life. The tree of life. Connecting verse 1 with verse 2, and you've got to do that. Don't let the verse divisions distract you. There's a flow of thought. Then he showed me a river in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So please don't miss the image. The picture here is of this wide street with this river running down the middle of the street. And there is this tree of life that somehow extends on either side. I, I picture it as a, a double-rooted tree with a gigantic canopy that goes across this river. And it's called the tree of life. Now, someone called me one day on the Bible line several years ago, and they said, is this a literal tree here in Revelation and in Genesis? Or is this a figurative tree? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is a literal tree. And yes, it is figurative. It is symbolic of something very, very important. Now, unless God simply uses some metaphorical expression or some figure of speech like it's like this or it's like such and such, then you apply the basic rules of Hebrew and Greek grammar. You take it as literal. And so some have suggested this is not a literal tree. But that would violate the basic rules of Hebrew and Greek grammar, not to mention the first time we're introduced to this tree. Hold your finger here and go all the way back to the first book in the Bible. Go back to the book of Genesis chapter 2 for a moment. You'll be glad you turned there. Genesis chapter 2. All the way back to Genesis 2. Don't look at me. Turn to your Bible. Go there. It will be helpful to you. Genesis chapter 2. And I want you to see the first mention of this tree. 
we're told in Genesis 2, and look, if you will, now at verse 8, the Lord God planted a tree toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So evidently, Adam had already been formed from the ground, and he was originally set west of the Garden of Eden before God planted him in this particular spot with these special trees that were in it. And so the first mention of the tree of life is found here in verse 9. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I hope you remembered what happened. Look over chapter 3 and verse 1. We're told now the serpent, that's the devil, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now Eve could have just turned around and, and ended that dialogue with the devil. But instead, she entertains the devil. Now, where is Adam? He's here, but he's not acting like a man. And that's the problem today. We have so many men who are not acting like men, and we have allowed the evangelical church to be feminized. We have removed women from the high and holy role that he has given them as mothers in the home, and we're making them preachers and teachers of the Word of God over men, and we're violating basic Scripture. And whenever you reverse roles... You open yourself up to grave deception. So here's Eve. She could have, she could have and should have quoted precisely what God had revealed to Adam. Or he should have stepped up and he should have said, Mr. Devil, from any tree of the garden, God said you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So Mr. Devil, why don't you get lost? But that's not how Eve deals with the temptation. She should have quoted Scripture. And that's what Jesus does. That's why your kids need to be in Awana. You need to get them there. Go out on a date for two hours. Get your kids in Awana. Get the Word of God into their heart. Use that little booklet during the week to instruct them and to help them. And so the devil puts a question mark after the Word of God in verse 1. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. You can almost hear a sneer in the inference that he is making. You have to understand, Eve, God is not here to bless you. God is here to withhold from you. God has not come to enrich you. God has come to rob you. He doesn't want you to eat from the tree because he knows that if you do, you will be fulfilled like him. Go ahead, the devil will say today, have a little wine with your pizza. Have a little shot of whiskey at the end of the day. It will relax you. It will make you feel good. Go ahead and watch that sensual movie tonight. Visit that pornographic internet site because it will make you tingle and it will make you feel sensual inside. It will be tantalizing. And the devil has convinced us that God is holding out on us and that we've been gypped. There was only one tree they could not eat from. And that's the tree that the devil exploited and pointed to. And so the devil would have you to believe today that the world out there, they're having all the fun and you're getting gypped. 
Then I get a five-part email this morning at 5 a.m. in the morning of some dear wife pouring her heart out over her husband who's living wickedly, ruining another family. Look what verse 22 says. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Did God want Adam and Eve to know good and evil? Yes, but how? By revelation, by what he revealed, not by experience. God doesn't by experience know evil. He is pure, he is holy. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. It's like God stops in the middle of a sentence. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden, he stationed cherubim. In Hebrew, there's a singular, there's a dual, and there's a plural for three or more. This is a dual. Two angels called cherubim, and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Listen, if Adam had passed the test of obedience... It would not be by magic, but by choosing by faith God's way, he would have lived forever and everyone downstream from Adam would have been pure. But we sinned in and with Adam, Romans 5 says, and so now everyone downstream of Adam is fallen and evil and he lost his right and the graciousness of God to eat from the tree of life because had he eaten from it now in his fallen state, he would become like the angels, unredeemable. So God placed armed guards, the cherubim and the flaming sword, a symbol of God's wrath and protection. Now go back to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, back to the end of the Bible. Revelation 22 and look at verse Two, if you will. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Now, at the time of the great flood, it appears the tree of life disappears from the earth. But now it reappears here in heaven in the Father's house. And this tree, which John sees, we're told, bears 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and Greek students and scholars unanimously agree that there are 12 different kinds of fruit each month. And if they're exchanged every month, potentially there's 144 different kinds of fruit that are represented here. And this, of course, is different from the old creation, where fruit is seasonal, depending where you live on the planet. Here, every month, there is fruit. And so what God once forbade, he now invites us to put out in the margin next to this verse, Revelation 22 and verse 7. Revelation 22, 7. Let me remind you what Jesus promised the saints in the churches in verse 7 of that chapter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, and all true believers we learned are overcomers. To him who overcomes... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so John is able to see on either side of the river was this tree bearing 12 different kinds of fruit every month of the year. So here in this main boulevard, you have a river running down the center, a tree of life probably like a canopy going across on either side with all these fruits. When we were growing up, um, my, my dad cared for literally hundreds of priests and nuns 
and his eye practice and never charged them a dime. And every Christmas, they would send us all kinds of stuff. And one of the things that they did every single year is we were, as a family, a member of the Fruit of the Month Club. And every month, they would send this box of fruit. And I thought, well, someday maybe I'll join the Fruit of the Month. But I, I don't like fruit that much. In either case, I know I will in heaven, especially God's fruit. But I'll tell you, there's going to be a lot of fruit in heaven. And it's going to be the most luscious, delicious. I love a good peach. You know, you just bite into it and it just drips down your face. It is so good. People have asked me, will we eat in heaven? Of course we will. Our body will be like Jesus. What did he do in his resurrected body? In John 21, Luke 21, he eats. We'll eat in heaven. Abraham, when he meets some angels, one of whom is God himself, the angel of the Lord. He has a meal. And of course, we've already studied the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will sit down with Jesus. Furthermore, we're told here in verse 2, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, major question, for what reason will the nations need healing? Now, I should say, parenthetically, that you will hear some really wacko stuff on this verse. But remember, while we may not always know what a verse does mean, we can usually definitively say what it doesn't mean. So some guy mailed me his commentary on Revelation, and in it, and it's not a unique view to him, he said that the nations are for people who are in natural bodies during the millennial reign of Christ, and every month they need to eat from this tree to sustain themselves in heaven. I know it doesn't mean that. Why? Because of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. It is clear that no one will be able to walk on the streets of gold unless they have a body designed for that. This mortal must put on immortality. Now, the word healing is the Greek word therapeia. It almost comes directly into English as therapy. And healing, in an earthly sense, is obviously not needed in heaven. Why? We've learned there's no sickness in heaven. For instance, we learned in Revelation 21 and verse 4, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and we'll, there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. Why? Because the first things have passed away. So the leaves of the tree of life symbolize a certain refreshment, a healing-like blessing. In fact, the root word means something that ministers to you. Somehow, I don't know precisely, and so I'm not going to go beyond with what the Scripture says, but somehow, for us in our resurrected body, these leaves are going to be a blessing to God's people. Johnny Erickson Tata spoke one day to a group of people in a class who were mentally handicapped Christians. And by the way, some people with Down syndrome are just as responsible before the living God as someone without it. I've met people with Down syndrome, some, who are obviously not accountable. They just don't have it up here. They're like an infant. I've met others who are living immoral, wicked lives by choice. And I've met others who are some of the most spiritual, godly, perceptive people I've ever met. 
one precious woman in our church, she brought her wagon in with, I don't know, 30 notebooks of scripture that she's been copying for the last decade. Entire books of the Bible. She's got more in tune with the living God than many of us do. But she was talking to them about someday she'll get a resurrected body. You know she's a quadriplegic as she jumped there in the Chesapeake Bay and hit a rock. And since the age of 18, from the neck down, she's been paralyzed. She was talking about her new body that someday she would get. And then she was telling this group of born-again Down syndrome challenge people that someday they would get a new mind and they all broke out in applause. Hey, this is a great place that God has for his people. It's a magnificent place. We will be in a resurrected body. We won't need any healing or any fixing up. Whatever this fruit is for and these leaves are for, it will be purely for blessing, but not for any fixing. There's a third picture beyond the river of life and the tree of life. Quickly as we close, there's the light of life. There's the light of life. Look now at verse three. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. As if to remind us that the fall will never be able to repeat itself, he says there will no longer be any curse. Heaven will be sin-free. It will be a perfect place. The curse will be forever removed. And as you study Genesis, and I have a whole message on this, the four results that the curse brought, that sin brought, four consequences. One, the curse brought death. The day you eat from this fruit, you will die. And so Adam died that day on the inside. Now we're born dying on the outside. And if the problem's not fixed, we will die forever in eternity. Second, sin that brought the curse brought pain into the world. There was no pain prior to the fall. And so God said to Eve, in pain you shall bring forth children. And many women can say amen to that. They know it. The third thing that the sin brought through the curse was sorrow. God said, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree from which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, curse is the ground for your sake in sorrow. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Fourth, with the curse, it brought toil. And so in toil you shall eat, and from the sweat of your brow you will eat your bread. But John says, there'll no longer now be any curse. And we studied in Revelation 21 and verse 4, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll no longer be any death, no longer any mourning, crying, pain. Why? Because the first things have passed away. And so when John thinks of the curse, who does he think? He thinks of the lamb who solved the problem. There will no longer be any curse in the throne of God and the lamb will be in it. The four consequences that the curse brought, Jesus fixed. Do you remember in Luke 22:44, he's in Gethsemane and being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood. It's called hematidrosis where you're under such pressure, literally the capillaries under your skin burst and you sweat blood falling down to the ground. The lamb in agony, in toil over your redemption and mine, he sweat blood. 
The Messiah also experienced sorrow, Isaiah said. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. The lamb with grief and sorrow as he walked through this life as a holy person dealt with the curse. The Bible also tells us that Jesus experienced the pain of the curse and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And then the text says later in the chapter, so he, Pilate, then handed him over to them to be crucified. The lamb suffered the pain of the curse on his head as he wore a symbol of the curse and as the nails were put through his hands and feet. And he physically, literally, spiritually died. There will no longer be any curse because the lamb paid the curse in full by becoming a curse for us. Now, once again, the place of God's authority the place of God's sovereignty, the place of God's dominion will be seen by every believer in heaven to its fullness, such that the Bible says, and his bondservants will serve him. We will serve him. Understand, work was not a result of the curse. Adam worked before the fall. We will work, though, without the consequences of the curse. And the verse 4 says, and they will see his face. We will see the face of the Lord Jesus, whom the Bible says is the image of the invisible God. In heaven, your relationship with God will be as close as you can ever imagine, as you will ever experience. There will be greater and more intimate fellowship as you will see the Lord face to face. Adam hid himself with his sin, Moses, one of the most godly of three men that God pronounces on the earth, he only saw God's back. But we will see him face to face, and he will brand on our heads, the text says. His name will be on our foreheads. The Antichrist marks his own with the 666, but God will mark his own. And then... The incredible statement repeated again in verse 5, and there will be no longer any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate, and they will reign forever and ever. The presence of God will be so great that Malachi compares the S-O-N to the S-U-N, and we will reign forever and ever. Now, I don't know where you're at today, but I do know when I read verses like this, I know the best is yet to come. I am better able to understand what Paul said in Romans 8.18 when he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Contrary to the prosperity theologians of our day that tell you that this present time, this life now is the best, how wrong they are, the best is yet to come. Paul says, I consider, the King James says, I reckon. It's a mathematical term, like gizomai. It means to count. 
And so Paul says, on one side of the ledger, I put all the heartache and all the disappointment and all the pain and all the sickness and all the suffering. And on the other side of the ledger, I put the glories to come and there's no comparison. They don't even compare because we haven't seen anything yet. You can bank on that. And God uses setting your mind on the things above, especially to these seven persecuted churches, as an impetus to press on. I remember walking with my brother Richard to grammar school one day. I was in kindergarten. He was in sixth grade. It was six below zero. My mother didn't drive a car. My dad would leave for surgery at 6 a.m. And we walked to school and we had those hats on. And we said, oh, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. And somehow we could bear the cold and the heavy wind that day because we knew that there was a school that was warm on the inside. And listen, I don't care what you are going through today, what struggle you may be facing. Set your mind on the things that are above because it doesn't even compare what God is yet to reveal to us. Now, I may have misinterpreted in some of the minute details of this book, but I can tell you one thing for sure. Jesus is coming and he is going to take us to a home in heaven that he's prepared for us. Think about that. If there were a place on earth where no one ever got sick, if there were a place on earth where there was no crime, no rape, no murder, no trial, no death, wouldn't you want to go there? You can go there if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So is it there? If it's not there, it's because you've not yet believed, but it can be there. And if you die without your name being there, you will die for an eternity in a place that God didn't make for you. A place God made for the devil and his angels. A place that in one sense you will be trespassing in, but in a place that God in his perfect righteousness and holiness will separate you from himself forever and ever and ever. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for your word. What joy it is to read it, to meditate on it, to let these truths get deep into our hearts. I pray today, Father, for someone within the sound of my voice here on one of our other campuses, someone live streaming, and they're not really sure that heaven is their home, that if this were their last day on earth, that they would spend an eternity there with the Lord Jesus. Help them to know that Jesus paid it all, that whoever, therefore, will call on his name will be instantly and forever saved. But help them to see that it is their rebellion, their own lordship and control over self, wanting to live life their way to do their own thing that will keep them out of heaven. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you offer living water that satisfies the deepest needs of the human heart. May we not be swayed by the cheap substitutes of the God of this world, Satan, who is energizing the sons of disobedience and offering to us cheap substitutes. Help us to watch over our hearts with all diligence because you said, from it flow the very rivers of life. Father, we love you and we thank you that our salvation was not cheap, 
but it was bought with the precious blood of the Lamb, in whose name we pray. Amen. To listen again to today's message from Revelation chapter 22, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV66. We are praying for a successful end of the COVID-19 pandemic through the rollout of the various vaccines. To that end, we're making plans to take two groups of interested Search the Scriptures listeners to Israel in September and October of 2021. If you'd like more information, visit us at stsisraeltour.com. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll ask the question, are you ready for Jesus' return? Join us then as we search the scriptures.